and welcome to A Living My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today is Amanda Kramer. Now Amanda's worked with some fantastic bands throughout her career. She started with Information Society. She was there at the height of their success, you know, What's On Your Mind, Pure Energy. And she worked with Golden Palominos, World Party. She worked with Susie Sue, 10,000 Maniacs. She was on their Fantastic Unplugged album. And now she's with Psychedelic Furs, which has been there for quite some time now. So Amanda kind of talks about how her career got started. And she's been kind of in the right place at the right time. And she talks about that as well. Uh, we haven't really heard about Amanda's story, so she doesn't really do a lot of interviews. So it's good that I had a chance to talk with her. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Amanda. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I've been a big fan of your work and all these groups for for years now. But um, let's let's start from you know the way way back. Um, who were some of your influences growing up, and how did you uh, get involved in music? I was born and raised in Manhattan. I grew up in New York. Um, adopted at birth, and I was just very lucky that. Um, I was adopted into a family that um, were very supportive and uh, cared about the arts, if you will, um, even though they were an artist themselves. And they sent me to the Little Red Schoolhouse for 10 years, and I was at Manhattan School of Prep from the age of 10. So I kind of grew up with a lot of classical influences. We did, of course, Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, all this stuff. My stepfather was very into uh, classical. He introduced me to Glenn Gould and Bach, and you know that really has formed my life for the last 50 years, to be honest with you. But aside from the classical, it was a lot of Broadway. We saw everything from you know, the original cast of Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar and a chorus line. And, you know, this was, um, it was, you know, a really lucky um, childhood in a lot of ways, musically, because I got exposed to all of these things as I was um, coming up. So I took piano, some guitar, flute, you know, tried violin, just did a bunch of stuff. And it was the piano that ultimately just stuck. Right. And it's, you know, it's, it's great, you know, this area, you know, the Northeast, especially New York, it's, there's so much music and there's different so many varieties yes. of music it, it's great oh to get God. yeah to to get a handle on that absolutely i mean it, it's it is a cultural mecca for sure and i mean you know not to, um you know be too nostalgic about it but you yeah. know those were the the decades of you know it was leonard bernstein was running juilliard and lincoln center and there was just still a lot of that kind of a post-war um talent the brain drain from europe you know had only happened like 20 15 years earlier so there was were so many amazing artists um from all over europe who had recently moved to the u.s and were teaching yeah so then you you kind of went to the west coast right yeah well that was um for university um i ended up going to um school in Northern California, um, UC Santa Cruz and the conservatory in San Francisco. And I became a harpsichord major, um, studying with some amazing teachers out there too, Linda Berman Hall and Lorette Goldberg. And I was just, um, you know, kind of biding my time. I didn't know if I wanted to really, I didn't ever wanted to work in the classical world. It always looked too competitive, too kind of cold, I think. And be, as an only child, there was something about bands that really drew me. I liked the camaraderie of it. I liked right. the fact the, of the working in groups 
and all of that always appealed to me more than sitting, you know, in a practice room on my own eight hours a day. <laughs> so um, then, you know, back to the East Coast, um, I moved back to the East Coast in 83, and then in 85, I attended the um, museum school in Boston for a year for electronic music and um, ended up meeting James Cassidy from Information Society in Jane and Jeff Hudson's video class um, in Boston, which was fantastic fun. And um, he asked me if I would like to join um, his band from Minneapolis called Information Society and um, join them on a, on a summer tour as they had a single out on Tommy Boy Records at the time that had reached number 10 in the dance charts. Yeah, so did you did you hear like any of their music before you agreed to do it or you just did it on a whim? No, I just did it on a whim. <laughs> <laughs> right. And yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I, I really um just you know, no one had like asked me to do anything that professionally before. Right. And I just thought um that it sounded like you know a really fun summer job if nothing else it's just um it ended up lasting for three years and you know we got signed to warner brothers and made a gold record and two, two top ten singles you know whatever it just turned into this whole world but at its inception we really didn't know anything none of us had ever really done anything in the music industry before i mean they had had a few records out locally on twin tone i think right. Um, yeah. and, but, you know, it was just time and place and um, it took off and we were we were all really lucky, I guess. Right. And the, and the single that uh, you were referring to is Running.
That is the single I am referring to. Yes, exactly, Reading. Yeah. Which um, had a life of its own. It was incredible. For like two years, plus maybe, we made a living just playing um, clubs in like the South Bronx and Miami. It was incredible. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was just like this kind of subculture of Latin hip hop that had just taken off, I guess, mostly on the East Coast. It never really right. reached California. We played a few shows out there, but not, you know, it was really a New York, Miami-based movement. And we were just picked up by the them, really, and the song was remixed by, I guess, well, this DJ who was quite influential named Little Louis Vega. And right. he and this one club that um, was very infamous back in the day called The Devil's Nest okay. in the South Bronx. Right. Um, on the corner of Tre Tremont and Webster, and we would we were basically kind of the house band <laughs> for a while, where we would we were playing there like almost every weekend, and then you know we just kind of learned as we went along. I mean, when we first started, the four of us, would, you know, we, we want, you know we got paid in cash. We shared one hotel room. Huh. You know, everybody slept on the floor. Our keyboard stands were ironing boards that we bring. <laughs> on the plane with us from right. Minneapolis. <laughs> you know, it was just, it was very homegrown. Yeah. But the, uh, the the community, kind of, I guess, the freestyle community, so to speak, welcomed you guys with open arms for oh, pretty much, God, like, yes. four, four white people, right? <laughs> I was, it was, absolutely, no, I mean, it was totally mind-blowing from um, that perspective. And, um, yeah, they embraced us as their own, and, you know, that's what we kind of became, and happily so. Yeah. So what was like your initial opinion of both like Kurt and Paul? <laughs> oh, brilliant. Goodness me. Let's see. Gosh, it's going back so many years. Right. Ago. <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess, you know, I was just, you know, I was always, <laughs> I was always the New Yorker in the band. Right. I was always the girl in the band, you know, so I mean, there were differences between us from, you yeah. know, the get go. Of course. But, yeah. You know, but I mean, I really, I always liked them. You know, we always got on on a certain level. We're all kind of um, keyboard geeks at heart. And <laughs> even though, you know, I'm kind of a bit more, you know, broader rock and roll, if you will. Right. It, it just, um, you know, I have a lot of respect for um, them and their work and what they were trying to achieve, which, you know, in my mind, uh, with the, you know, um, the you know joys of hindsight was more you know they were these kids who had grown up in Minneapolis um, they were very smart and mm -hmm. they had a lot of um, interest in arts and music so to them it was like what they were doing was kind of you know a craft work sort of right, um, right. thing that had been also of course you know pop influenced by the all of the English early 80s bands as I had been as well such as you know the very uh, first, you know, Teardrop Explodes, Depeche Mode, Human League, right. uh, even Thompson Twins, um, yeah. those first records that came out with no guitars and all had, you know, top 10 singles. That was a profound um, moment for those of us who were keyboard players right. and um, didn't necessarily want to always have to have a lead guitarist, you know, to make a, a band work or, you know, what have you. It was it was much more cerebral, but all of those people I still think of as, you know, trailblazers who really, they, you know, they're very intelligent um, human beings. Right. And then uh, if, if Running was, you know, a success, the following single just blew it up with, uh, you know, what's on your oh, mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Yes, yes. So that's that's the one that went um, national for sure. Yeah, I mean, and what a surprise that was. Once again, so that like came out like um, that was almost like two years after I had joined that record finally got released. Right. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. That we recorded the year before with um, a wonderful guy, Fred Maher produced that. Um, he had been uh, Lou Reed's drummer and okay. had been Scree Politti and okay. uh, a really talented guy. He produced quite a few records back in that those sort of like I think late 80s, early 90s anyway. But um, that was kind of, you know, we were low man on the totem pole. Hmm at Warner Brothers, right, right. Um, you know, we weren't expecting anything. We got no poor support. We got like the smallest video budget of any mm -hmm. band ever on a major label and gave the um, job to this brilliant man, Mark Pellington, who made a video that MTV then picked up and went immediately into heavy rotation for like three months. 
Yeah, that, I remember watching that video all the time. It was I was like obsessed with it because I was also a big Star Trek fan, still am. And I was just like, whoa! I get to hear you know Doctor McCoy and Spock. Um, were were you guys big Star Trek fans? Well, um, they were. They were right. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was more. I, you know, I, I cannot claim any credit for okay. the Star Trek <laughs> influence. That was all the guys, one hundred and fifty percent. But it was so important to them to have all that stuff on, and it really did, um, you know, make it. Um, it was the beginning days of sampling. Yeah. So it wasn't like everyone had done it already. And so it did make um, an impact. And like you said, you know, kids like yourself listening to this stuff and watching it, it made an impact at the time because of that, I think. But um, none of us foresaw the success of that single. It took us all completely by surprise. Absolutely. Right. What Was it hard to get, um, you know, clearance for, like, Leonard Nimoy's voice and DeForest yes. Kelly's voice? Yeah. Well, actually, yes, it took, um, I took Warner Brothers nine months to clear the wow. record with the entire cast of Star Trek, had to listen to it okay. and approve, which is how they run things, which I think is quite f- wonderful as well, really, right. that... Anytime anyone wants to use a Star Trek anything, the whole entire cast has to approve it, not just, you know, whatever, William Shatner or whatever, Nimoy at the time. Yeah. So, um, so it moved slowly and and we were impatient and and young and, (laughs) you know, very happy about that. But, you know, um, we just played more shows at the Devil's Nest. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, just hung out until they were ready and, you know, whatever. And then... Um, came out and did quite well. Then the follow-up single was similar, Walking Away, that um, reached uh, number seven. But the biggest hit was What's On Your Mind, which is number three. I will never forget that moment, for sure. Yeah, and, you know, like, it really bugs me because I've seen, like, in certain places, like, that song will be on, like, a one-hit wonder list. And, like, you you guys have had a bunch of hits. And it's like, it's very well, near, yeah. you know, I mean, like, yeah, I, I think yeah, of a yeah. one hit wonder, like you have like a top 40 or top 10 song and you don't have anything else in the top 40. And that's not true with Information Society at all. That is true. But I think there's quite a few um, bands that get kind of slotted that way unfairly, to yeah. be honest. I think I think the church is another one. You know, yeah. it's kind of like. You know, because it's like you know that there's there's only but it's but it is a fact still. If you go to the larger population, mm. that is the one song right, of course, that they will have heard. And in our case, it is primarily, or in the beginning, it was literally due to that video. Then radio picked it up and it you know started climbing. But we were one of those bands that you know remember we used to say you know oh they're an MTV band. We were what that was. If it hadn't been for MTV, it probably never would have happened at all. Right. But I mean, like, a lot of bands who, like, make it with MTV, you know, and then they don't tour or they don't really play live shows where you guys played a ton of live shows before actually hitting a big on MTV. Well, that's true, too. But, you know, but it was also very... um... I guess, you know, because let's, you know, just the way I look at it now, I guess, because I was very into, um, you know, more punk rock bands at the time. Right. I would go to more, you know, like First Ave or, you know, or CBGBs yeah. or whatever and see uh, my stuff that I was into. But it was, uh, most of it was kind of cold. I mean, you're right, but it was still probably the same, you know, 
I don't know how many, you know, because I have no idea, to be honest. But but since we played the same sort of clubs, we were playing to the same sort of demographic, right. I guess, that, you know, would would normally go to the Devil's Nest to see uh, TKA or whoever else right, right, was, yeah. um, you know, coming up through the ranks. Whereas, you know, that's a different demographic, a whole different musical cult, if you will, from the people who are going to CBGBs weekly. Right, that's true. You know what I mean? Oh, no, you know yeah. What yeah. I don't know how else to say it, really, but I, I hope that comes across. Oh, no, I, absolutely. Now, do you think, like, you could have, Information Society could have played at a place like CBGBs or no? I think we could have, but it just, it went, its, it was its own animal with right. running, and it went its own way, yeah. and that's, you know, that's, um, you know, there is a, this is a good question, though, you know, because there was a point, I think, in the band where, both where Paul and Kurt were kind of at odds on this particular issue, where I think Kurt wanted to try and cater more to a rock audience, right. if you will. And, um, but Paul, as head of the band, and the guy who wrote 90% of the stuff, was just kind of much more practical about, minded about, he was just like, no, this is where the people who love us, this is where we're going. Mm. <laughs> sort of, you know, he just didn't really, um, mind one way or another and I think as we've all gotten older we really anyone in entertainment you cannot pick your audience right really and you and in a way that's how it should be you know what it's whoever loves what your work is who loves your work and that is you know who you should be um, I don't know like acknowledging in, in a sense rather than trying to you know be Absolutely. loved by a group that might like Love and rockets better, or whatever. Right. You know what I'm. You know yeah. what I mean. Absolutely. Anyway. Yeah, because you, you'll you'll limit yourself if you're trying to just target that particular audience. I think so, and I think it's it, it's kind of at the end of the day, it's not really that important. You mm. know what? It's like right. looking at it 30 years later. It's the people who bought the record who loved it, and you know, like yourself, you're the one who's calling me for the interview, not someone who you know wanted to listen, listen to something else at that time i guess right i mean sorry oh no absolutely because i mean that I, I, that album is great it, 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 it goes you know much more beyond what's on your mind i mean repetition and like your cover of That's you true. know of abba the song ABBA on cover. there is great Good.
very a visionary in a way. I mean, so that was Paul again. You know, yeah. his, his, you know, he that was way before Abba was so uncool when we did that cover. You know what I mean? Like right. everyone, yeah. Those are not the years when anyone no. was listening to Abba, but Paul was like, "That's the one." You know, so I mean, I liked that about it. You know, I, I liked right. that sort of thing. It wasn't obvious the choices right. that were made. Yeah, because if you do it now, it's like oh, because of you know the success of Mamma Mia oh you're doing an ABBA cover exactly. big deal you know oh my god right yeah it's and, totally and all the cover bands that have come since and right. you know what I mean it's just yeah. you know rock and roll has aged with us so it's just um, I mean you know you look at the West End or Broadway today and you know 80% of the shows are based on rock nostalgia of some sort or another yeah you know, right I mean you could never, we could never have imagined that you know in the 70s right. you know what I mean right it's just yeah, I mean, the, the Go-Go's have a show now. I mean, you know, Cher, I mean, everyone. Donna Summer had one. Yeah, it's it's, it's crazy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But then, um, like, you left the band shortly after yes. the, re the release of it. And I recently rewatched the Bands Reunited show on, a, oh, on, okay. on yes. a VH1, which I've been, I loved that show when it first came out. It was a great idea. Um, but uh, you guys, unfortunately, was only a half hour. When was the half hour show? Because usually it was an hour. I was like, uh, they're not getting back together. You know, you, Paul, and Jim all got there. Kurt flaked out. Yes. Yeah. Now, yeah, did you ever yeah. talk to Kurt after that? Or oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've seen each other. And yeah, yeah. No, this is interesting. That, I mean, but the thing was that, the thing, I mean, to be honest with you, I haven't watched it myself in so many years. Right. It's almost like 15 I, years I, old. I, I yeah. remember you know, what happened, you know, at the time, I mean, it was a total surprise, right. but, um, you know, I felt, um, for myself anyway, that, um, I was on the road with the first when they came and asked me actually, but, um, I just said, you know, I'll try to make it, but I, you know, I didn't know, you know, yeah. and they, so they kind of planned the schedule so that, you know, it was after the tour finished and okay. all that, but, right. um, Kurt was, you know, we all thought Kurt was going to come, to be yeah. honest. We all thought that right. he would come. That I didn't want to be the one who didn't show. show up. Right. And so I made, and that was for, you know, obvious reasons presented in the, in the show. Right. But be, I think what happened with that episode, though, was because we were all expecting Kurt to show. He didn't at the very last moment. He never came, right? So we're yeah. all sitting there talking right. for the two days or whatever it was that they'd flown us in for. Which was great fun just to hang out with Jim and Paul, of right. course. But um, I don't know. You know, I think um, well, I think a few things. Um, it's it at least got us all back in touch with one another. It got us all um, talking again, and um, we've kind of been in touch ever since. And it also, I think, is was the um, impetus. I think the reason Kurt didn't show was because he hadn't played live in many years okay. at that point right. in time. I don't think they played in 10 plus years or okay. something. You know, whereas I had just kind of carried on touring right. with other bands. Right. So I think he didn't feel prepared enough to do it. I think that's why he didn't show. But by a, a year later, they did do a first reunion show, which I think was in New Orleans. And that kind of started them touring again, which they still do. Yeah, I, I saw them. Which is cool. Yeah, I saw them about four or five years ago. And yeah, it was it, it was a good show. It was like one of those like you know freestyle shows. So they oh. you know they played maybe three or four songs. But um, well, you know, I mean, I think it's you know it's just nice to see them doing it. I mean, actually, yeah. this is like two years ago now. I was in 
the Dominican Republic at one of these 80s weeks of things. And um, they had played a few days before we got there and they had left. Kurt was the only one there. So we did actually get to um, hang out for an evening and it was wonderful. And sometimes he comes to first shows. I saw him last summer in San Francisco. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. And sometimes Jim comes when we play Portland, you know, Paul I haven't seen in a few years since he moved back to Minneapolis, but I used to see him regularly when he was in LA. Okay, great. You know, cause like, yeah, yeah, cause those shows, yeah, those shows kind of like, (laughs) you know, kind of skew it the way they want to. And I just, was I was curious what you know if you guys spoke after that and I, I know they got back together yeah. but you know because you, you haven't no, been no, part of the do. band so but I'm glad that you guys kind of reconciled yeah. <laughs> no no we do I mean it's just kind of you know I mean it's like I guess you know in terms of you know playing live again it's just kind of awkward I think for on all sides because you know they've got something that works right and I'm on the road all the time yeah. anyway so it's Anyway, it's fine. You know, maybe someday I will just come and, you know, sit in for a gig or who knows what the future will bring. Yeah. But at least, you know, whatever. After 17 years of not talking, at least we're all talking. That's a pretty big thing. And that was the VH1 show that did that. Really. Right. Yeah. And that happened to a lot of bands, too, that weren't together. And as a result of that show, they got back and, you know, toured and got, you know, recorded new stuff as well. So it Very was Very cool. Yeah, it was good. So, but then, after, cool. yeah, after you left... Um, Yes. You joined, uh, which I, I really enjoyed this band. straight to the Golden Palomino. Yes, yes. Yes. It yeah. was literally like one week information society, next week of Palomino's. It was crazy. It was just crazy. But the thing that was even more amazing for myself was that at that time, the Golden Palomino's were one of my favorite bands. Right. <laughs> and I had been following them for a couple of years, and I'd seen them live Um when uh, you know they were on tour with oh my God Sid Straw and Bernie Worrell and right. Matthew Sweet and Peter Blake I mean just most incredible musicians mm-hmm. on earth so it was such an honor to be asked to you know be a part yeah. of that scenario so um, yeah I was I did four albums with Anton yeah I mean how did how did they like you know recruit you well I guess I met Anton through an engineer who is still very active i think he works at spotify now his name's mm-hmm. william garrett and he was a um engineer producer dude you know new mm-hmm. york boston based and i guess at the time anton and sid were um fighting and so anton asked <laughs> will mm-hmm. if he knew anyone and will gave him my name so i came and auditioned in anton's living room and um got the gig that's yeah, that's great. Now, yeah, like <laughs> that was it. Yeah, I mean, I think of like all my friends, no, no one really knows the band, so it's like I try to get people involved, and no one, no one knows them. But it's ah, uh, yes. yeah, it's kind of like yeah, a yeah, no. underrated, well, underappreciated oh, bands. No, I told totally agree with you, but you know, in a way, it kind of you know, uh, it's so complicated that band because right. the music was so superior but it was like think look at the people on those records i mean it it would just to tour cost you know of course you know i mean it was just impossible for anton to support it live yeah because of the um 
people involved, you know, you had Jack Bruce and Richard Thompson and, you know, Mick Taylor playing on the records, right. and Carla Blay, and it was like, well, you know, then it comes, and we did try at times, you know, there were a few attempts to kind of, uh, you know, do it, and but we didn't really uh, play live until there were a few reunion gigs in New York around, when was it, right. 2009, 10, we did a few gigs and, uh, that were brilliant, but, um, yeah, you know, I think also, you know, the the labels that the Palominos were signed to were, um, you know, kind of independent, um, dodgy, no money sort of scenarios as yeah. well. So right. like celluloid, so, right? <laughs> sorry, Cell, yeah, celluloid, right? Celluloid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was all celluloid. I remember when like the IRS came and like put like a deadbolt on their <laughs> offices in New York. You right. know, they owned so much money. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was one of these sorts of right um, things. So I mean, the whole thing was kind of chaos <laughs> from day one. And Anton, yeah. of course, you know, hated that, but he had signed the deal, so yeah, he had to live with this. Right. And the, and then I think as time went on, you know, I mean, you know, Anton's one of the most talented men I've ever met, but you know he has a very black and white way of looking at things and you know he's not out to please anyone and least of all the music industry or yeah. you know what i mean of course so he was yeah. always at odds with managers and you know what pe everyone were telling him what he should do versus what he chose to do yeah we're always two very different paths but you know at least you know but it, you know he can sleep at night having made his own choices because he never wanted to be the Rolling Stone. You know what I mean? Of course, he, yeah. He was never done with those sorts of intentions. Right. He did or it he would have just had one singer and yeah, you know, one guitarist and whatever. Yeah. It would have just been another band. But it is an incredible... Um, those albums are an incredible library of, of American talent. It's true. Oh, oh they're Absolutely. great. Yeah. Yeah, I love Drunk With Passion. That's, that's one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much.
I mean, my favorite was always um, the Blast of Silence. Okay. You know, with everybody else on it. <laughs> right. That was the album that came out right before I joined. So, you know, whatever. To this day, I still put those songs on. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Great stuff. And Sid and I are very good friends now, too. I mean, we're close and we've done a few. I'm uh, not that, not enough, really, but we've done a bunch of solo gigs, uh, just me and her out in LA sometimes when we meet up. And um, I even got to sit in um, one of her yearly um, gigs at McCabe's out in Santa Monica. She plays out there for uh, Valentine's Day every year. Oh, that's great! Yeah, she she is so underrated. She's you know. It's, oh my god, yeah. she's incredible. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely, what an incredible talent. Yeah, absolutely. So then, um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I told you before that I interviewed Dennis Drew from Ten Thousand Maniacs, yes. and you know, and you collaborated with them a little bit on the Unplugged album, right? Yes. Well, you know, I toured with them for two whole years. Okay. So I well, I joined to tour the Our Time in Eden record, right? Which was the what released right before the MTV uh, Unplugged. Yeah. And and at the end of the um, Our Time in Eden tour, we recorded the MTV Unplugged um, episode, and then toured that for another six months or something, whatever it was. So it was kind of like ninety one, ninety two. Uh, this sort of period, I was uh, yes, very involved with the Maniacs. Right, and that uh, was a lot of fun. Yeah, and that was uh, Natalie's last album was Our Time in Eden before the it, the, uh, the uh, Unplugged album. But and she yes. already uh, she already announced that she was leaving after that album, right? Yes, we all from the day I yeah. got the job, right. I knew that she was leaving. We all knew. Right. But the public didn't know. No, yeah, but no at one that knew. Time, yeah. Right. But we were all told, and and so. You know, it was um, very. There were there was a very sad element to that because I mean they were at their peak. We yeah. were playing, you know, like twenty thousand seaters a night, sheds right. all over the country. I mean, it was huge. But um, you know, she had an, other musical paths to take, and I think, um, well, as we've seen, you know, once again with with the history of the last uh, 25 years you, you know natalie she did her solo thing she did what she wanted to yeah. do and then she got out of the industry and right. raised a daughter you know and that's what she wanted to do she didn't want to spend the next 20 years on the road right you know it's funny not everyone does you yeah know what I mean? we, right and now she's back doing small gigs i see you know around the northeast just you know uh, very intimate sort of poetry but i think you know she started in that band so young i think she was like 17 or something when she joined and i think she just mm. you know wanted to do me she's a great singer obviously great yeah, lyricist but right. she just she wanted to do music without the, the loudness of yeah. the 10 of us behind her right. i think that she just reached a point with it where she wanted to do gigs with like a string quartet yeah or you know what i mean like, right no drums no guitar you know yeah i think she just had enough right basically yeah and but it's a shame i hope they do you know i, I hope they re all get together someday who knows who yeah knows? i mean they they did luck out because mary ramsey is fabulous too and she uh um, oh yes yeah. no mary was on the route actually she right. played she was um, in that Viola as well on the right with us yeah so i mean i know mary and john quite well too right. of course and yeah. all of that and yes absolutely mary is phenomenal musician absolutely but you know once again it was like they'd already kind of 
past their peak at that point, it's very difficult to reintroduce a, a second singer yeah. to a rock and roll band for anywhere on earth. That's rarely worked well. Right, exactly. In terms of commercially, you know what I right, mean? Right, yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean. yeah, no, I, absolutely. Because they're, you know, they're still touring. They're still putting out albums. Absolutely, yeah. that's right, and that's fantastic. But you know, it's just kind of, you know, they've already had such a huge following that I think it kind of has changed over now. Now they've got their own following. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's just funny because yeah, and Natalie, you know, I mean, just on the outside looking in, kind of similar to Anton, where just they both do what they want to do and really don't care about the commercial success. As it should be, exactly. No, I mean, I have utmost respect for that approach, and really almost everyone I've ever worked for is like that. So is Carl Wallinger, so is Susie Sue, so is Richard Butler. None of them are the types of personalities that have ever really succumbed to those, you know, desires of the music industry or the the demands, should I say. Right, and I I absolutely love uh, World Party. Carl, you know, a genius also. Um, how how did that uh, collaboration happen? Oh my God! Well, back to ten thousand minutes. <laughs> on that two-year tour, the last six weeks of the two-year tour, our opening band was World Party, and so I met them on the road and made friends with um, Carl and uh, specifically um, the bass player David Catlin Birch, and then. Um, when um, Natalie quit, um, they invited me to England to come play with them, and that was exactly 25 years ago. I moved to England to join World Party and play main stage Glastonbury. Wow. And that was kind of my audition gig for World Party, and I've been in England ever since. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I mean, you're an extremely talented musician, but a lot of it, you've been at the right place at the right time. This is the truth, my friend. It, I could not deny that at all. I have been extremely fortunate. And as I tell all of my young musician friends, time and place is mm-hmm. everything. Because there are so many talented people out there. And um, it, there's, so, you know, there's only just so many opportunities. And it's just, it's luck of the draw who gets chosen a lot of the time. I do believe that. I really do. Mm-hmm. So then, um, your current band, you know, Psychedelic Furs, uh, you know, yes. fantastic band. Uh, now, did you listen to them like growing up? And I would say growing up, like yes. in the early '80s as well. Yes, yes, yes. Um, oh my God, yes. Um, well, so anyway, so you know, whatever. I mean, I just like let you know carry on with the um, strain of World Party for a second because sure, you know, I've been in England ever since. What happened with? Um, the first was um, I was you know in England already and um, you know the, I guess Carl got ill around 2000 he had an aneurysm and right. the band kind of oh it was just so traumatic and anyway terrible stuff he's fine now but there were a few years there that were really worrying and he'd stopped touring and playing and so. Um, I got the call for the Furs during that period, and so I started with them when I, they had just reformed after a ten-year hiatus, mm-hmm. and Richard had been doing Love Spit Love, and I guess right. you know Tim and John had gone off to do other projects, and um, I've been with them ever since. Yeah. Now, like, 
what it, long time yeah. now. But you know, they were my favorite band when I was at university in Northern California. Right. So it's true. When I got the call, I thought to myself, this is what I'm going to do for my midlife crisis. Right. I'm joining the psychedelic <laughs> furs. Right. But little did I know I would have been, I've been there ever since. Yeah. And then a few years after that, they were kind of on hiatus because right. they had just replaced their original guitarist, John Ashton, right. Rich Good, who is still with us today. Yeah. And um, so I went out on the road with Susie Sue for a year and a half. Yeah. During that time when she did her solo record back in 2007, eight. I was with her. And then in 2006, I still did a, a national tour with World Party in the States. So, you know, I try to mix it up, but the first yeah. have been very, um, considerate about that you right. know because you know we tour what regularly we're out there what yeah. six months a year but you know there is time for other projects as well right was it like intimidating at first like playing the songs like you would listen to like on the radio fuck yeah no it still <laughs> is really i right. mean with Susie as well yeah you know what i mean both of those bands were my Susie. When I was like 20, my four favorite bands were, this is like 1982 you know, or okay. whatever, right? So talking um, The Furs, right. The Banshees, yeah. um, Joy Division, and Early Cure. Those okay. are my f favorite bands. Wow. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, yeah, and, and to play with, you know, two of them, I mean, that's 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 unbelievable. I mean, you know, Susie's, yeah, it's Susie's true. a genius, yeah. This is it. Our dreams can come true. They do. But, you know, you have to be careful what you pray for because you just might get it. You know? Right. Yeah. At the same time, the grass is always greener. So. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have to be prepared for the deed. But, yes, no, it was crazy. I mean, I remember, like, the first few months of playing with the first thing where, like, he comes up to us on stage mm -hmm. really close and kind of sings into the microphone yeah. in our face in a way sort of you know right. and it used to just like almost i would almost like fall over every time <laughs> he came over i was like no don't come over here just because i was so intimidated yeah just being on the same stage with the man i mean i hope he never hears this podcast to be honest right. no, i hear <laughs> it is the honor. yeah that, that is the honest truth absolutely right well, what absolutely. is he like a person like as a person who, Richard? Yeah. Oh, he's awesome. No, he's yeah. amazing. Amazing. I mean, seriously, I think I think this August, late August, this this coming uh, Labor Day, I will have worked for them um, seventeen years. Wow. Huh. Yeah. So I mean, he has to be a good guy, right? Yeah, I would think so, right? <laughs> there you go. Otherwise, yeah. I would have been somewhere else by now. But no, yeah. I mean, seriously, I I adore the Butlers. They are for my personality and musical um you know um, uh, affinities they they are you know they are the band right. if you will if there is one yeah you, you i'm happy right are there any uh, albums coming out or anything um well you know it's always the 10 million dollar question um <laughs> and I, I i hate to spread um rumors but there is recording being done let me put it that way oh, and great. i think there's the anticipation of a record at some point in the next year however when that will be i could not say okay well at least something to look forward to so that, that that's good yes absolutely absolutely okay all right uh Quick question about Information Society. You remember where you were the first time you heard like one of their songs on the radio? 
I do, but I bet I was in a in probably in a car with them. Right. In New York on the way to a gig or something, because there were a few stations in New York that used to play them regularly before anywhere else in the country. But that's my guess anyway. And it was quite a quite a moment. It always is though, you know, all of that stuff. But you know, I did, um, you know, I, I don't know I, if you know, um, two other bands that I've been involved a little bit with the last five years, what I did do um, four years on the road with um, Tom Bailey, Thompson Twins. Yes, yes. So I've been fitting that in the crevices as, as well of all this stuff. But I, and, and also um, the past two years, I've had the pleasure of joining um, Steve Kilby of the church for some of his solo shows right. um, here and in um, the UK one in Australia. Anyway, whatever. So there's, it's always fun for me to work with these um, talented people yeah. who I've, you know, whether I, you know, had owned their records or not is right. kind of irrelevant. It's just they were in the ether. They are a part of my upbringing just because of, you know, I'm about what, eight years younger than they are. But right. still, we, I grew up, they were my heroes. When I was 20, they were already mm. stars. But they were what I was aspiring to become, right. if you will. Yeah. Did, I mean, not a star, but to no, play. No, of course, you know, of course. Sort of yeah. yeah. Did Did you tour with Tom last year when he was with uh, B-52s and Culture Club? With Culture Club. No, I stepped down from that one because there were too many conflicts right. with the um, first. But I had done two weeks in Australia with um, Culture Club. Um, oh, okay. At opening for Culture Club in Australia the following, uh, the previous Chris December, right. December 2017. That was kind of the last tour. Last summer, I filled in for a few gigs in, actually in Florida, here in Florida in July, but those were the only shows I did with him last year. So oh. I do, yeah, and I know the bees anyway, because we play with them with the furs. Right. We sold out three nights at the Hollywood Bowl with them a few years ago. So anyway, it's a great big 80s world, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it absolutely like, is. Yeah, all, it all interconnected. And I think that's the joy of it, really, because, you know, you're asking about hearing the songs on the radio, and that is always a huge moment, of course. But even now, I find it funny. I'll walk in a store, I'll be in an Uber or whatever, yeah. and some people have an 80s station on right. and I'll have played on bands, like five of the bands <laughs> the songs that are coming on. You know, that's always really what makes me smile about it. Right, definitely. You but know, the fact that it lives on, that it's so popular now and seems to be growing every year. Yeah, it's it's, it's fantastic. It's a mystery to all of us. Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. But uh, oh I know, right? But but Amanda, this was this was fantastic. Thank you for a few minutes tonight. It was lovely chatting with you too. And a special thanks to Amanda for joining me today. You can follow me on Twitter at the first all one nine. Be sure to like the page of Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes, not a problem. The show's on SoundCloud, it's on Podbean. We have a new store right now on Threadless. Go to relivingmyyouth.threadless.com. Go check out all the new merchandise with our new logo. New episode comes out every Wednesday. We'll see you then.